Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How long do we have to do it for? Just one more. <laughs> okay. There we go. Think we're a bit too upset. That was marginally, but only marginally less awkward when we did it in the sound check. <laughs> for everyone at home, we just came on and did the baby shark dance. <laughs> Not let Some it would drop. say Pandora is slightly lacklusterly, but I'll let it go. I haven't slept the last two nights because I can't get it out of my head. Like, I think it's, it's going to be a psychological... So, because I'm finding that I wake up in the middle of the night, and it and the and the doo -doo 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 I've never wakes been me up. So obsessed, in, but like in a bad way. I think it's an addiction. Yeah. Has anyway. anyone else got a baby shark addiction? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Just us. <laughs> um, so we're almost in December. I'm quite excited about this. Is anyone else feeling festive? <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> I've got my Christmas cream. <laughs> Mine's arrived as well. Have you seen Melania's Christmas trees? Oh, the red ones. They're so creepy. Have you? Yeah, seen they're them? horrible. Someone on Twitter put little white hats on them and they look like handmade trees. <laughs> <laughs> on brand. Yes, quite sinister. Um, lined up like a sort of firing squad. Also, which I think is quite a Christmassy thing, probably for anyone that has children, if not, probably not so Christmassy, is I went on my first trip to Hamley's this morning. I think that's parent. so exciting. It was insane. You have to, like duck because there's like flying sort of saucers coming across there's yeah. like animals going through the air it's like it's like being in Willy Wonka land but there were so many I was literally arming up on toys did anyone have one of those poodles that used to like walk very slowly and be like do you remember those no I'm too old for those I remember the battery like that the, was it it was a yeah. battery poodle that like came forward like that yeah so I was like gathering it all up and Ollie was like no Pandora no. said to me Zadie chose her Christmas, Christmas present she did, yeah. and I was like she's nine months old how did she choose a Christmas present and she said that Pandora did it that she sort of just presented different stuffed monkeys at her and the one she sort of waved at the most yeah she chose that was the selection process also just to let you guys know going to Hamley's as a parent Christmassy going to Hamley's as a non-parent, creepy. <laughs> Support for this week's episode comes from the Google Pixel 3. To celebrate the launch of the Google Pixel 3, Google has opened the doors to the Curiosity Rooms. <laughs> a five-week-long experience at 55 Regent Street, which is running until the 16th of December. Google are encouraging visitors to unlock their curiosity and make their everyday more extraordinary with a series of free workshops, talks, podcasts and more. Tonight we're recording the episode live from the Curiosity Rooms and we've had so much fun exploring the space. Google have teamed up with the local London businesses and coffee shops to provide them with pop-up space, plus there are heaps of fun experiences to fuel your imagination. My personal favourite was the all-in auto wash, where Google have turned a mundane car wash into a fun photo booth, literally in one of the shop windows on Regent Street. You can use the wide-angle selfie mode of the Pixel 3 to get an amazing group selfie of you and all your friends. So thank you to the Google Pixel 3, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Make sure you visit the Curiosity Rooms at 55 Regent Street, which is open until the 16th of December, between Thursdays and Sundays. Now tell me, Dolly, did you place your book in the uh, display upstairs? <laughs> no, I didn't. I have to say, I felt a little bit sad when I saw Pandora tonight, and she said, oh, I've just read your book. And I was like, oh, I, th I thought you read it quite a while ago. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was all right. <laughs> no, I hadn't, read it for, I hadn't read it for ages. I actually just went to the back to check that you'd thank me in the acknowledgements and you heard. So I was like, yes. that's fine. I shut it and then came and found you. <laughs> Since last episode, you've been exchanging some DMs with... Oh, my God, guys, this is big news. They're going to think it's Chris Hemsworth or something. Like that. Chris Who? Hemsworth. Who's Chris Hemsworth? Don't worry about it. 
Who is Chris Hemsworth? He's an actor. Since last episode, I've been exchanging DMs with bougie London literary woman. <laughs> Can we get a big cheer for her? <laughs> so, bougie London literary woman DM'd me and said, "Divine creature, so kind of you and Pandora to mention my little pensée on your enchanting podcast. Bisou, dearests." And I replied in a very low-key manner, "I love you" in capital letters. Likewise, dear heart. And I said, I'm so interested to know where bougie London literary woman lives. I think maybe Herne Hill. And she said, just moved into a charming little place in Clapton, <laughs> but, I'm often, <laughs> but I'm often to be found haunting those southern climes. And I said, so do you like to cycle to the heath on a Pashley? And she said, oh, constantly, darling. I do practically nothing else. Must go. Got a tart in the Arga. Adieu. <laughs> I think it's the best DM exchange I've ever had. I love that she was like, "God, I'm never going to get rid of this Dolly." I know, it's Dolly was, Anderton. She was trying to invent shut a it talk down. <laughs> Here's a fun fact for you: Leon C in Essex is the happiest place in the UK. This was a survey done by Right Move. I'm including that because you're often really dismissive of where I find myself. Foxy Bingo. That's where Pandora gets most of her journalistic it. research. I've never found it from Foxy Bingo. And apparently it's just because everyone is very friendly and there's a sense of community. Sounds rather lovely, Leoncy. Very sad fact from this week. It was revealed that one of the Rotherham rapists was to be granted access to his child. Campaigner Sammy Woodhouse, who was raped by Arshad Hussain, was, and who was jailed for 35 years in 2016 after being convicted of 23 child sex offences, was told by Rotherham Council that he could seek visits from the child. In a video which has now been viewed over 200,000 times, Sammy Woodhouse said, this story is about myself, about my son, about the man that raped me, and about the fact that Rotherham Council have offered him to apply for parental rights for my child. She said that even when she applied for a passport for her son, she was told that she would need the father's permission. So this is kind of a legal protection of parents that just in this instance has been so badly or, or there's been a complete lack of mm. adaptation and there's been a lot of people speaking out about it, a lot of judges. An NSPCC spokesperson added, we need to understand if this is a one-off failure or a system-wide problem that needs to be addressed so no other survivor and their child has to go through the same trauma. I mean, it's just hideous that mm. after having been incredibly brave during that trial, she's now facing another Huge massive, ordeal. massively exposing thing to... Yeah, I was really, really shocked by that story. It's kind of unthinkable to have to go through that trauma again. Less shocking, but maybe for some, slightly shocking. The chain restaurant Frankie and Benny's is encouraging a phone ban. Did anyone read this story? Encouraging a phone ban for families, because there's some quite sad research, I think, that says 72% of children wish that their parents were on their phone less. Yeah, I can believe that. Well, frankly, it's all that Zadie talks to me about. <laughs> and I'm really good at that. <laughs> so bitchy. And Frankie and Benny's are encouraging customers, when they come in with their families, um, at the front of the restaurant to hand their phones in so they can have a phone-free meal with their kids. What do you think about this? I think that's a bit weird. It's very bossy, I think. Just airplane it during dinner. I think handing in your phone feels a bit like being at school. Would you hand your phone in to Frankie and Benny's? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, there was some very... If one phone's got a common cold, they'll all have it by the end of dinner. <laughs> they need their own separate little bed. The responses to it was very funny. Some people... Where did you read it? Twitter moments. <laughs> you source no. your news from Foxy Bingo. I source it from Twitter moments. No, it's very useful. So it's, it's really divided people. Some people think that this is, you know, a great solution for a, a you know, a... a very, very big problem. And that research, I do think, is quite sad. But then there was another person, I, forgive me, I can't remember who it was, but tweeted saying, Frankie and Benny's is the restaurant that serves a two-pint strawberry milkshake with a jam donut wedged in on the top. The welfare, we of, the welfare of children, I think, probably not top of their list as an authority. But no, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the sort of snack that Pandora has, by the way. Don't be fooled by this very chic thing going on here. I want to try that for sure. Sounds quite full-on even for me, though. Anything in ye old mailbag? Yes, everyone at home... I'm excited you didn't bring it with 
I no, no, you I did. I did. There's a large Hessian sack that we have on stage. I'm going to get you one. <laughs> Bursting with letters. We had some brilliant responses to our segment on John Allen Chow, the American missionary killed by the Centralese tribe. Matilda, who is currently studying colonial and post-colonial geographies at Bristol, recommended some documentaries. The Pearl Button and Putu Parry and the Rainmakers, and a TED Talk, Aaron Huey, about the Lakota tribe. Matilda said, In trying to understand ingenuity in a modern context, there are difficulties in attempting making direct translations. I often felt in the lectures that I couldn't really understand why there was so much value bestowed on something as simple as a waterhole, or how seven generations of ancestors can be stored in a stone. And that is the trouble in trying to translate this difference into conceptual terms that we can understand in a modern-day context. Our differences will never fully translate. In short, we might never be able to understand indigenous tribes, but it is of great importance to respect their land and to simply leave them alone. There was also a thought-provoking letter from Jani Kurtakar, an Indian woman living in New Zealand, who writes, I feel as though Chow's missionary aims have been treated in the media as benign and at best bizarre. Since he was wielding a Bible rather than a gun, his actions are not seen to be as inherently violent. Yet missionaries have ravaged people and cultures throughout the world, and Chow was actively participating in that history. Self-importance and imperialism have driven missionaries for centuries. The idea that their beliefs, traditions, and cultures are the only right way to live has caused so many beautiful cultures to distance themselves from their history. I thought this was really interesting. I think she's got a point about how we are quite reverential and forgiving about religion and missionaries who are seen as altruistic and not having any kind of self-motivation. I was actually, it still is an invasion. Well, I was thinking to how we covered it last week and I think we might have covered it slightly differently if he hadn't been a missionary. Yes. It didn't really criticise, no. you know, we just, we just said it was a, a great sadness. But I think if he hadn't been a missionary, we might have. I think this was subconscious, mm. but I think that we might not have been so, sort of, as she says, forgiving of it. There's a school of thought, albeit a small one, I hasten to add, that Mother Teresa's baptism of dying people without their consent was, in fact, an aggressive act as she was overriding their other-held religious beliefs. So I think that's something quite interesting. It certainly was food for thought for me that actually, I mean, I suppose any form of kind of fundamentalist or... Dogma. Yeah. That's being ex- pushed. Yes, has, has as, as she says, an agenda. Mm. We had a response from Claire in regards to Lena Dunham's staggeringly revealing interview in New York magazine. Claire writes, many other famous people who make phenomenal work get cancelled or boycotted, and very rightly so, because of the awful things they've said or done. Woody Allen for his general creepiness, Mel Gibson for his anti-Semitic comments, Kanye West for his comments on slavery, to name a few. All mega-talented artists whose work is undeniable, but not people that I think you guys would maybe defend as voraciously as Lena. I, of course, know that Lena has had her fair share of criticism from the media, but she still evokes a kind of misunderstood and poor me vibe, which I think she shouldn't have the benefit of receiving. Lena comes from a background of huge privilege and was presumably educated by some of the best schools in the US, but despite this, she is one of the most unaware celebrities of our time. When are we, as other women, going to stop defending her abhorrent think pieces, essays and tweets because she made one or two good films and a TV series? Uh, I'm still really conflicted about that piece, I have to Quite say. a blistering email. <laughs> yeah, fair, but you know, that is the viewpoint of a lot of people. And uh, <coughs> No, I don't think it's without... It's, yeah. I think it's interesting. That's why, that's why you've included it from the mailbag. That's why I've taken it out of my large Hessian sack. Uh, but it's, I, I've seen other sides to it as well because I... Yeah. I really can see both sides to this argument and I don't want to become like a prolific Lena Dunham apologist, but I do think it's quite a nuanced and, and, and complex situation that she finds herself in. I don't think it excuses some of the things that she said, but I do think it's not without context. But I actually did see the journalist Alexandra Haddo tweeted this week saying that she read that piece and she thought that it was incredibly unfair from start to finish that she felt like she the profiler was not on Lena Dunham's side from the moment that she began but I, I I thought I said that to you that I felt like there were there were definitely bits included that were meant to add shame I mean yeah. it was already a very revealing in, I don't know the whole thing was just uncomfortable I think it says a lot about uh, there should be, there should be some kind of barometer by which you're allowed to like 
in any other circumstance, if someone was vulnerable, you wouldn't be allowed to do certain things yet with... And we're journalists, I'm not saying we're not, you know, mm. implicit in this industry, that there is sometimes a lack of accountability, aren't, isn't mm. there? But as she says, am I saying that because she's a young woman? Mm. If it was Mel Gibson, would I give a shit? Do you know, I saw something interesting on uh, Twitter Moments, uh, my main news source. Just pretend you got it from somewhere else. I saw something like interesting on CNN that a woman tweeted saying the reason why we react in, in <clears> such a <throat> kind of violent way emotionally to Lena Dunham and the things that she says is it's almost a fear of our own lack of self-awareness. 100%. So it's like when we're presented with someone that unself-aware, it's almost relief and schadenfreude because I think we all know that we have it in us to be narcissistic, slightly self-absorbed, slightly blinded by our privilege. You also think you're the voice of a generation, Dolly. <laughs> Little bit. Moving on, Pandora. <laughs> what have you been enjoying this week? I've been reading A Spark of Light by Jodie Pickelt, who is an author I used to read a lot as a teenager. It's about a hostage shootout at the only abortion clinic in Mississippi, which is true mm. in real life as well. There's only one abortion clinic. Yeah. And it, abortion is now illegal after 15 weeks, which is the smallest banned threshold, whatever you want to call it, in the US. The Washington Post calls her the queen of ethical dilemma fiction, which I think is a really apt way of describing. She writes very readable books about very difficult topics. The incredible thing about this book is the level of research, which I suppose you, you do have to do if you're going to write a book on this topic um, and want it to be taken seriously. And on the publisher's recommendation, I read her author's note or essay at the end before I started the book where she says that she interviewed 151 women who wow. had abortions. That's a huge canvassing of experience there. She interviewed pro-life advocates for the book and pro-choice. She even relayed, which I had no idea about, and I wonder if anyone else didn't, that Norma McCorvey, who was the Roe at the centre of that landmark American abortion case, Roe versus Wade, tried to get Roe versus Wade overturned after she discovered Christianity and no longer wanted to be there, which is so... In you don't no. you talk a lot about Roe versus Wade, but didn't know that the woman herself then wanted to have nothing to do with it. There was one particularly powerful paragraph I wanted to read out. There's a mistaken belief that legislating barriers to pregnancy termination or overturning Roe versus Wade will end abortions. Precedent doesn't suggest this. In the 1950s, 1.2 million unsafe abortions were performed annually. According to the Guttmacher Institute, the rate of abortions declined from 2000 to 2008 despite their legality. But breaking down the numbers is important. For women in poverty, abortion rates increased 18%. For wealthy women, they declined by 24%. That means poor women are getting pregnant when they don't want to be. In fact, 7 out of 10 women who terminated a pregnancy made less than $22,000 a year. In 2004, three quarters of women surveyed said they had an abortion because they couldn't financially care for a child. No study, she writes, to date, has asked if improving socioeconomic conditions for these women would decrease the number of abortions. And I think that's absolutely the right way to be having this conversation. I is break down the women who find themselves needing abortions. And that's not, that's not to discount the person that just doesn't want a child. I'm not saying that that's, you know, for some reason less valuable than the woman who can't afford a child. But what she had discovered is that it is so often related to economic... Yeah, and she goes on to say in this essay, you know, if, if the kind of legislators in America put half as much energy into having more nationwide health care or helping with education, you know, any of those things, then, then this would sort itself out instead yeah. of always locking people into so many different tiny state laws that now there is only one, one abortion clinic. It's just kind of unthinkable, isn't it, when we're in the UK and you just yeah. take it for granted. I also enjoyed Russell Brand on Fern Cotton's Happy Place. Have you listened to that one? No, but I love Russell Brand. And I, I know it's often not a very popular opinion, but I love Russell Brand. I think he's, he's such a fountain of wisdom. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I really no, find he's myself... No, so right. I really... People think he talks this kind of esoteric... He does. Woo-woo guff, but as we've already established, I'm a pretty woo-woo gal. And I find myself really, really agreeing with so much of no, his I mean, philosophy he's, with he's life. He's really, really clever. Yeah, it was an incredibly interesting one. They went deep. They were talking about essentialism, so, you know, whether or not 
the idea of an essential self exists. He was talking about Sartre. Um, the bit that I thought was really interesting, which I think you will love, is he was talking about the difference between obsession and addiction. Because Fern said to him, you know, as an addict, how, how would you kind of determine the difference? Like, as- That's a really interesting question. Yeah, and he said the difference was ad- um, addiction is obsession plus compulsion. Yeah. So he would say when he was a sex... He would still call himself a sex addict. He's just obviously not acting on those inclinations. But he would say, you know, my obsession would be with sex. And so my compulsion would be to go and... He said it in this very Russell Brown way, like sort of make a sex act or something. <laughs> um, so that's what he said was the difference. And they also discussed, which I'm such a big believer of, how contentment is so often about discipline. So yes, you have practice. Yeah, yeah. so you yeah. have to exercise self-discipline. So yeah, that is I a, totally agree with that. It was a, a oh well, definitely listen to that. Did you listen to the Dawn French one? No, that was the first episode, and it was beautiful. It was so beautifully done. She's a great interviewer. She's done a happy place podcast at Google's Curiosity Rooms. Great, and that wasn't even planted in the script. No, it I'm wasn't. Pandora. It wasn't. <laughs> I just read it earlier when I came in. I read another thing. I think you will really enjoy, Dolly. A depressing but interesting piece in the New Statesman by Jade Angeles Fitton about how the Reddit 4chan crew, you know, the misogynists who spend all day on internet threads, are using sex dolls as the plastic face of a vicious backlash to Me Too. One Reddit user described his sex doll before declaring, hey, guess what, Me Too? I've unleashed all my toxic masculinity on my supermodel feeling doll with no consequences. I rape her whenever I feel like it and no going to court for me. It's a really interesting piece and she says something that frequently comes up when discussing sex dolls mentioned by both Milo Yiannopoulos and the Reddit users is the dildo argument. Women have dildos and vibrators, the argument goes, therefore men should have full automated life-size AI incorporated sex dolls with 42 nipple colours. <laughs> the difference being when women say a dildo or a vibrator replaces a guy, they say it in jest. They aren't literally and physically trying to replace men. And then she goes as a little aside, if they were, dildos would come in more disappointing sizes. <laughs> she's got some, some humour in there. Um, so that's a really, really interesting piece Yeah, well. that sounds great. And also, they're getting cheaper. I mean, they're still really expensive, but they're now like 7500 Some gals over there really like that baldy joke. <laughs> <laughs> they're getting cheaper. Yeah, they're getting cheaper, and I think they'll continue to get cheaper and cheaper, and then we'll... I, I think in, like, 20 years, we'll genuinely know people who's... What's it, Lars no, and the real girl? I don't. I can't hear this. Okay. Are you going to say that I have to invite someone's sex doll to a dinner party? I barely like inviting people's husbands. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I've been enjoying. What have you been enjoying? There's... The, I love the contrast. I know. High and low, everyone. Any Joni Mitchell fans? <laughs> there is the most beautiful Joni Mitchell radio programme on Radio 4 called Joni Mitchell Taught Me How to Feel. And they do actually insert the clip of Emma Thompson's character in Love Actually. Such a moving season. Come on, darlings. Yeah, no, the bit they they insert is her saying... I I watched it a few times last (laughs) (laughs) night. Pandora is so attached to that film, she is actually going to start welling up. So just take a breather. I can't talk about it till December, though. Are you crying? No. Oh, your eyes looked a bit glassy there. (laughs) Yeah, they they include the moment where she her character says, Joni Mitchell taught your cold wife how to feel. Because I do think that that is... Alan Rickman's voice. No, that was my Emma... That was my Emma Thompson. Anyway, onwards. Um... (laughs) <laughs> I think that that is true for a lot of people. I think that she, the music of Joni Mitchell really, for me certainly, and they, they speak to a lot of Joni mm. Mitchell fans and a lot of male Joni Mitchell fans as well, which you never ever hear from. And it, they talk about how important this music is in terms of kind of plummeting the depths of our emotional landscape. And that's why that line from Emma Thompson is so important in that film, because I do think that... Joni Mitchell has taught so many of us how to feel. You know, it's like, it's her album, I'm going to start, going to start sounding pretty stoned in about 30 seconds, but her albums really were the, the tool, the map that I used as a teenager to, to kind of understand very big feelings that I was having for the first time. And it really delves into that in this program. Uh, it analyzes the music and lyrics of her work from the late 60s, starting with Blue, which is the best album in the world, all the way to uh, the late 70s and early 80s when she was doing more of her kind of world music and Charles Mingus stuff. And it's really, really great archive footage as well. There's this bit that I actually uh, copied, I 
quoted on Twitter today where she's talking about, it's, it's like an archive interview with her and she's talking about this album Blue that she wrote that is the most kind of soul-bearing and, and emotionally vulnerable album I've ever heard. And she says that when she was writing it, she felt, she felt like so vulnerable and exposed she said she felt like she could see through people and everyone could see through her she said i felt like we were all made of cellophane and i was just dripping with sincerity and earnestness when i wrote that i was listening to that on the top deck of the 24 bus and i just absolutely bald <laughs> so very much recommend that if you need a good cry i've also been listening to tbd Oh my goodness, I forgot about that. The Tina patron Brown. saint of the Hilo, Tina Brown, has a new podcast called uh, TBD, Tina Brown's Diaries. But she hasn't also... confirmed that she was inspired by us, but she hasn't not confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> so Jill Soloway is the first guest on TBD, and it's a fabulous interview. She talks about the new series of Transparent, the final series of Transparent, which actually isn't going to be a series, it's going to be a musical about the Pfeffermans with a rich... Oh, I don't know if I can do that. I know. it's uh, Well, do you know what? Her sister, Faith Soloway, is a kind of musical genius and they both have done a lot of stuff with musicals in the past. They did the Brady Bunch as a musical. So they are known as being kind of book musical book writers. It's all these kind of original songs about the Actually, Pfefferman Actually, to be fair, family. I love... Book of Mormon, and I loved. I think it Jerry Springer the opera. Well, I think it will be in that kind of. It, it will. It will have a kind of satirical edge. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it will be like Jesus Christ Superstar. Although she did say that that's been a huge influence on them. The other interesting thing about that interview is that she talks about Jeffrey Tambor, and obviously he is no longer going to be in the series because of his allegations of of sexual harassment. And something, I've never heard her break it down in such a granular way. She's kind of said quite hands-off stuff about it in the past. Yeah, because we talked about it recently. Yeah, because I think she's still sort of processing it, not understandably, as, as an advocate for human rights, a very vocal advocate for human rights. She should, she should be kind of coming down one side or the other, I think, on it. But she also, this is the first time I've heard her talk about it, where she kind of explores all the all the complications of it and something mm. that she says is Jeffrey Tambor is famously mercurial and had a terrible temper and people who've worked with him before have said that that famously an arrested development he was known for having this for not being a great ensemble member of a cast and she said when the the reason it's not so much the exact act of the things that he did but it's the lack of awareness that he had that he had of his own power so as the person who's number one on that bill of the casting sheet who is the star of the show who's kind of famous that. who's white who's straight who's male who everyone on set is scared of that suddenly has much more of a meaning that he needs to be aware of when he starts speaking inappropriately or behaving inappropriately mm. with people it becomes much much more loaded and I just found that like the way that she broke it down and, and really dug into all those different variables, um, I found it a really interesting mm. and kind of curious way of looking at how, how that happened on her set. So yeah, highly recommend that. And finally, I would like to recommend a short story for Some Such magazine, which you can read online or get a beautiful that hard new? I copy. I of Some Such. I think there have been four uh, issues. Very satisfying to say. Some Such. And my very good friend, Octavia Bright, who is a phenomenally talented writer, has written a beautiful essay. I should say some such uh, publishes short fiction and personal essays and academic essays. And this is a personal essay that's completely exquisite and poetic and raw and lyrical. And it's about addiction and emotional convalescence in recovery from addiction, seeking oblivion, the seaside. She went to go live in Margate for six months to kind of in a stage of her recovery. And it's about the kind of harshness and the romanticism of Margate, as well as talking a bit about gentrification and the kind of changing landscape of the British seaside Town, and she kind of weaves through this beautiful thread of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. It is such a beautiful, beautiful essay. I'm so proud of her for writing it. So I'll put that in the show notes or go and buy a very beautiful copy. And in fact, I'm going to read you a quote from it. This is the opening paragraph. Thirst. Margate is a thirsty place. Its switchblade tide draws back so far that by the time it turns, the shore is parched. Rude epithets scrawled in chalk line its coastal paths. 
Lustful and wayward, this town is wild, with a steady drip of London transplants, fleeing the city's rapacious capitalist appetite, it's gentrifying fast. Yet Margate's wildness persists. Poverty and addiction are rife, but this wildness isn't a synonym for these things. It's to do with the sea. This place is edgy because it is literally on the edge. Edgy but romantic. Edges are romantic because they suggest abandon. My lover is the North Sea. I'm in it and it's in me. I like that about the edges. Mm. It's a very, very beautiful piece. Thank you very much for your recommendations. Now on to emotional labour. Friend of the Hilo, Sophie Wilkinson, sent me a story from The Atlantic by Julie Beck about the explosion of the term emotional labour. So it's been used in loads of newspapers recently, like New York Times, Sunday Times, all in the last few weeks. And there is a new book by the journalist and author Gemma Hartley, which is getting a lot of airtime about achieving gender equality in the home. It's titled Fed Up, Emotional Labour, Women and the Way Forward based on her viral Harper's Bazaar article of last year, where she defined emotional labour as unpaid, invisible work that we do to keep those around us comfortable and happy. Is it the new gaslighting? Do you know, I actually haven't heard the word emotional labour. I haven't heard it kind of in common parlance. But the minute that I heard it, it did strike a chord for me, because I think it, it describes... It seems to me to describe the kind of work that a woman is expected to do by default in various areas of life, which involves keeping conversation afloat, making people feel comfortable, being charming, making people feel relaxed, and generally kind of accommodating people. So I think that's why it's being used a lot at the moment. I'm not really sure if I think all of those things necessarily go into emotional labour. The sociologist who coined it says that it's not being used correctly. Ali Hochschild introduced the term in 1983 with her book The Managed Heart and it was, to, it's really interesting actually to describe the process of managing one's emotions that are required by certain professions. For example, she gave the example of flight attendants who have to smile even in stressful situations on top of doing their job. Right, yeah. She says, we're now seeing emotional labour move from the workplace to the home, and I think that's really true, mm. to describe anything from writing Christmas cards to doing the washing up. Sophie Wilkinson instantly thinks that calling washing up emotional labour is abominable. <laughs> I do too, actually. Hochschild says this is overextensionism. I think that's a brilliant word, so applicable to lots of things. The idea that we're taking what is a really kind of radical or really important term, mm. and extending it to sort of anything that we find like a bit boring or a bit annoying. Just going back to the original term, this is one of the best things about being a freelancer is that there's absolutely no emotional labour because you just sit at home in your pyjamas just being a grumpy bitch. <laughs> so that's why I would never be an air hostess. <laughs> For me, I think expending emotional energy is something... I have to say, everywhere I look, it does feel to me like women are doing Gendered. it more than their male counterparts. And it does feel far-reaching to me in terms of the home, uh, families, the workplace. I actually, I, I think a place where you see it a lot, particularly as a single woman, is in romance and in dating and, and kind of the beginnings of romance. I've just recently started dating again, and it's rough out there, by the way, uh, if anyone's <laughs> considering doing that. And something that I've noticed... Which, it's the emotional labour. <laughs> well, there kind of is an emotional labour. There's this thing that happens in dating. Not all men, just as a caveat before I get some angry incels emailing me. <laughs> something that I've noticed is that the way that women are socialised is that it's kind of up to us to, like, keep the conversational boat afloat. So we're kind of the captain of the ship. We have to keep asking the questions, making jokes, making sure the wine's topped up. And I, I, you really I do think people, feel it. I think that might be the role you play, because I think a lot of men would argue that they are the ones that have to do No, all that. bollocks. Trust me. I've been... <laughs> They have to keep the wine. Pretty much for a decade. Well, maybe I'm just a wino. Forget the wine thing. But there is a real sense, and a lot of single women I know say it when you're out there dating, that the bloke is kind of sitting back and being like, what do you got? I think you might be one of the women that Hochschild is accusing of overextension. I think you might be her prime target. But you know what? It's not just in that. I was thinking about emotional labour in terms of couples that I know, and something that I've seen a lot with my parents and their friends, people who have been married for a very long time, is 
I've noticed that the, the wife in a relationship always has to do more work for all the grandparents. So a few examples I know is that if someone's, if someone, yes. if a husband's mother is ill, then the wife will care for her. The wife will bring her into the house. The wife will treat her as if she is her daughter. And then I know a few occasions where that's happened in a couple and the wife has nursed the mother, to her mother-in-law to the end of her life. And then the mother's mum or brother or whatever gets ill and the husband doesn't want anything to do with it and they're not coming into our home. I've, I've seen that happen a few times. Yeah, I, I think, think that's, that's an extreme example, but I do think that there is this kind of default that we have that women are kind... Women, pr- women like doing pastoral roles more than men. Yes. No, I can, see, I can see that, but I also think there is quite a lot of bastardised use. I think the best one I read was calling the maid to clean the bathtub because it is burdensome to have to make the call. <laughs> it is emotional labour. Julie Beck does a lightning round of is this, isn't this emotional labour with Arlie Hochschild, which I really enjoyed. I liked this. She said, is it emotional labour to manage household Christmas merriment, such as sending Christmas cards, baking cookies and planning family get-togethers? I know your answer. Well, the thing is, what's difficult there is that I actually bloody love doing all So it's not things. emotional labour, which leads me on to my next point, that what Hoshtar said is the reason why so many people are calling those kind of home-based acts emotional labour is because there is an alienation or a disenchantment of acts that we normally associate with the expression of connection, love and commitment in the home, like what a burden it is to pick out gifts for the holiday or it's such a pain to call a photographer to do family Christmas photos. And I think that's, I think that's really true. I think that's really valid. And she said, well, let's look at why we're finding the home life so alienating at the moment, something's gone haywire. And she's, she's not judging, she says, but let's take it as a symptom that something's wrong. And I think that's almost more important than the is this or isn't it this, the right application of emotional labour. Because what I think what she's suggesting is that as work has, thank God, taken on more of a role for women in general, that the home has then been something they resent. Because as you say... We're not divvying that bit up. Yes, exactly. And I, th- I think the thing we have to be careful of is that sometimes, you know, a lot of the time, women do gravitate towards traditionally feminine pursuits. And that's okay, but some women don't. So it shouldn't be taken as a default that the jobs that are more mm. creative or domestic or emotional in the house are just given, allocated to a woman without re- real assessment of whether she wants to do them or not. So I think that's, that's the deciding factor when it comes to whether you're expending emotional energy. And I also think it's just about fairness. I think it's about if, if I'm taking over these jobs that potentially ask for more of my emotion or more of myself... Mm. You need to be bloody cleaning the oven. Well, Ali Hoshad said, I think this is a really great line and worth talking about another day. What if home has become work and work has become home? I think that's really poignant. And then Julie Beck says something that I also think was really interesting. If we talk about all the unpaid labour women do in the home as emotional labour, we are essentially saying that women do the work and women are emotional, so it must be emotional labour. So she actually said even in that way, the calling it of emotional labour is doing a disservice to women to assume that there is... You know, uh, that everything is imbibed with huge amounts of emotion. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I think, again, I think it it, it just comes down to fairness. I was thinking about this term in terms of the household that I grew up. And my mum definitely was the one who kind of was was providing more emotional labour. She was the person who was comforting. She was the person speaking to all family members, whether it was her direct family members or my dad's family members. She was the one that was providing solace for people. She was giving space. She was hosting. She was being charming. She was smiling. She was, and that does take it out of you, but it's what she gravitated toward and it's what she's good at and it's what she likes doing. And the fact is my dad did everything else. And yes, that's a very traditional setup and maybe some women would, that would be their idea of hell. But I think it's just about taking moments to assess where your strengths are, and to make sure it's fair. Absolutely. I totally, Ollie and I completely divvy up chores in, it, to the point where if something is now a him job, I won't do it even if I am. It needs to be done. <laughs> I am there. What's, I have time. What's a him job? Emptying the bins. Oh, God, you've lucked out there. <laughs> I actually tweeted once saying that I would give... I do the laundry, though. 
Oh, I love laundry. He does the washing up. I mean, you don't need... This is going to be so dull. But I, it's, <laughs> it's, it's divvied up. I uh, tweeted recently saying that I would give a year, I think, of my life. I would cut a year of my life expectancy off if it meant I never had to go near a bin again. I don't think that's that much. Yeah, someone said they'd give five years. I think that's slightly ridiculous. They must have a lot of bin juice. Support for the Hilo comes from new online lifestyle brand, Truly. Truly creates living, fashion, beauty and baby collections with high quality products at affordable prices. From cleverly designed weekend bags to a leather tassel that doubles as a phone charger, all of the products have been created to make the everyday easier. If you're after an end of year pampering session, I intend to have one that lasts an entire day, perhaps on January the 1st then Truly is the place for you with a wide range of beauty products. The foaming bath oils are a delicious way to relax at the end of the day. They moisturise as well as being bubbly. How much do I love a scented candle, Dolly? You love a scented candle. You always have one burning when you're working, which is very decadent. It is. It's my ultimate luxury, I think. I know it's a total cliche giving someone a scented candle, but never worry about giving me a scented candle as a present. I will always devour it. Not with my mouth. Well, thank God you clarified. Truly's candles are presented in a beautiful frosted glass and come in a great range of fragrances and the packaging is fully recyclable. Our favourite is Truly Number no. 1. It's a fresh green floral scent infused with wild berry, geranium and moss with rose undertones, which is a really great affordable gift at £20. Definitely a go-to in the run-up to Christmas. Browse the full collection at truly.co.uk. Thank you very much to Truly. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Sarah Michelle Gellar has landed herself in hot water. That's another term that sounds hilarious, taken out of print. When would you ever say, actually, you probably would say, Panda, I'm in a bit of hot water. I've landed in hot water. That's quite BLLW. Another one that I've uh, heard the other day is the phrase whip smart. Whenever yeah, you're reading, very American. Whenever you're reading treatments, it's like, she's a sassy whip smart lady. Can you imagine if you're like, what's your new colleague like? And I said, well, she's whip smart. <laughs> so stop being weird. Anyway... Hot water. She, Sarah Michelle Gellar has been accused of fat phobia and fat shaming for posting Did a... Did anyone see this picture? Does anyone follow Sarah Michelle Gellar on Instagram? I sort of forgot, not in a bad way, but I forgot she was still like, alive. <laughs> As in, you know when something's been like really iconic? Like yeah. Buffy was huge. Yeah. So I forgot. Anyway, she is alive. She's got two and a half million Instagram she's followers. She's allowed she to be... in hot water. She's allowed to be alive, Pandora, just because you're no longer watching Buffy, I must say. <laughs> She posted a photo of her in her underwear. It was from an old photo shoot, and she looked absolutely gorgeous. And she wrote underneath, I'm just going to pin these up all over my house as a reminder not to overeat on Thursday. Hashtag Thanksgiving prep. Oh, they did oh. not like that. We're quite forgiving of her in this. Maybe we should change it. <laughs> the tweets in response were... I would say divided. They're not really divided. Most people weighed on the side that this was kind of inappropriate and, mm-hmm. and fat phobic. One of them said, some people are so conditioned to accept diet culture that they can't see it when it's right in front of their face. Someone else said, hey, Sarah Michelle Gellar, I freaking love you, but this message, especially for young, vulnerable girls, is crap. What about someone who can do both? What about considering your messages through a body shaming slash adding to a shitty culture filter before posting? Your body is gorgeous, but so are all bodies. Chubby, fat curves need lifting up, not more demonizing. Some defended Sarah Michelle Gellar. One wrote, choosing not to overeat or overindulge isn't an unhealthy mindset. Live your life and they can live theirs. You're not responsible for them and they are projecting their issues onto you. Nothing you wrote in the caption is psychologically unhealthy. Sarah Michelle Gellar apologised and said, I love Thanksgiving and unfortunately my eyes are often bigger than my stomach and I tend to eat so much I make myself sick. This was a joking reminder to myself not to do that. I'm terribly sorry that people were offended by my attempt at humour. Anyone that knows me knows I would never intentionally shame anyone on any basis. I'm a champion of all people. Pandora, what are your thoughts? I think her joke falling flat is an indication that joking or even talking about women's bodies is extremely 
controversial. Yeah. We're all expected to have a unified outlook and expectation of our bodies now, even though they couldn't come in more shapes and sizes. And what I find interesting now is sometimes the way we talk about, I hate this phrase, real women, or even something that is great, obviously, like the body positivity movement, is it's just shifting the goalpost to another, you know, another thing of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. I do worry that we can't even, not can't even, but she can't talk about her own body without it becoming a universal yeah. comment. I think my reaction to this hasn't been as straightforward as I thought it would be, because initially I just thought... What, I thought it what? would really fuck you off. Initially it did, and then I actually thought about it, and I thought, yes, on one hand, this is shaming, this is damaging, this is playing on an enormous amount of insecurity on all women, but particularly, as one tweeter said, on vulnerable teenage girls. I was thinking about how I would have felt mm. seeing a picture like that when I was younger, and it w would have had a horrible effect on me. And it also endorses this idea that I'm very, very anti, which is everywhere, which is that eating is inherently an unfeminine thing, that eating is somehow gluttonous or embarrassing or not sexy or not cool. You know, you feel it mm. all the time, even when, you know, when you're younger, when you're eating in a group of women or when you have fears about kind of eating on first dates or whatever. It's, it's a really damaging message that's yeah. kind of spread everywhere. And the other thing is that's damaging about it is she's, what she's saying is any shape other than this is shameful. That, like, this woman in this picture is the, is the correct shape, and that's worrying. But then on the other hand, she wasn't promoting not eating. She was promoting not overeating. Over and I also think that pressure, more and more I think this is as I get older, pressure on women for their bodies to be a certain way and shame around that is a shared problem. It, as much as we don't like to admit this, it's, it's not just overweight women that are terrorised by that. It's women of all shapes and sizes. And I do think like we're allowed to share those anxieties. We're allowed to make dark jokes about those anxieties. So I really, I can see both sides of this. I think it's a dangerous place when we decide that because of a certain shape that she is, she's not ever allowed to talk about a level of oppression that she feels. Or not allowed to talk about her body at the all. fact that she can't... Everyone, no matter what size you are, everyone can overeat. Mm. I get frustrated when I see overeating, confl uh, you know, saying that you don't want to overeat is conflated with having controlled eating. I've definitely experienced that as someone, as someone actually with lifelong stomach issues. I've had IBS for years. I find it really frustrating when I grow and, oh, I've overeaten, you know, and I'm really bloated and I have a really sore tummy and someone's like, oh, you're fine. Like, I've actually shouted, oh my God, I'm so fat. Help, don't make me fat. And I haven't even referenced my body. Mm. That said, I don't say it whilst wearing lacy pants, so maybe it was that she shouldn't have used the example of her own talk about overeating, because it's, mm. it's shit to overeat. It's shit to, it's shit to eat shit all the time. And I've done it. I, you know, I'm a sugar monster, as you know, talking about the Frankie and Bennies. And you do feel, it doesn't matter if you are slim, you still feel awful. But yeah, it's the, the lacy pant picture probably wasn't the best way I, to make I, the point. I think the problem is as well is that she's probably got such a long and complicated story and context with the issue with her, with her relationship with her body and her relationship with food. She might not though. Well, maybe she doesn't, but I, I think that we don't know that context. But the problem is, is that when she's someone who is such an idealised mm. version of Western beauty that we all is rammed down our throats at all moments, that if in advertising, on Instagram, everywhere we look, conversationally, that if you don't look like this type of woman, then you're failing. I thought you meant that, ev that Sarah Michelle Gellar was everywhere and everyone was like, if you don't look like her, and I was like, I, mean, I forgot she was still alive. I don't know, <laughs> what have you been watching? No, it's in what she represents. No, I understand. She is a <clears throat> template of kind of, yeah, yeah, of what yeah. we're all told we need to be. Yeah. If someone who has that is then feeling public, you know, shame around their shape, then then maybe maybe that is irresponsible. But, but should then she, should she take responsibility for everyone's self-esteem? Should she hold the shame of everyone else? Yeah. Like, you've written a book, should you hold the shame of all the people that can't finish their book? I know I'm, I'm you know, it's a bit, I'm being a bit inane there, but because bodies are very different to um, book writing. But I still, I still think by the same token, this idea... I mean, we talked about it a lot before, this idea that one woman is responsible for, every, you know, the, the feelings of everyone else. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think the reason why it's so controversial is, is because it is about her body. I think if she was expressing an opinion elsewhere. But I do, I do get quite nervous about this idea of if you are in the public eye, you are, you are responsible for the well-being of everyone because otherwise we're not going to hear stories 
and as, you know, storytellers that I find that very sad. Yeah, and I'm, you know, generally not into the idea of censorship full stop, particularly not censoring women. So I think it's... So I don't know, I'm, I am, I have to say, I'm really, really conflicted, conflicted about this because I, I, I think the disappointing thing actually isn't so much what she's saying, it's the fact that she is making a comment on her body at all. You know, it's bloody Thanksgiving, mm. can we just, like, leave bodies out of it? I just think... But if Freddie problem. Prince Jr., who she's married to, in case you didn't know... Oh, my God, I forgot that amazing bit of pop culture. That's incredible. Are you joking? No, I forgot. Oh. Good. Oh, no, sorry. I've got completely mixed up there. I thought that they were in a teen film together. They were. They were. Weren't they? Yeah. Scooby-Doo. What? Scooby-Doo? They were in Scooby-Doo. Oh, right. Okay, well, they were in that. But anyway, if he put up a picture of himself topless 15 years ago and said, reminder not to eat too much on Thanksgiving, hashtag Thanksgiving prep, there is no yeah. way we would be talking no, about I this. No, I know, but men... Everyone would be like, you're so funny, you're so sexy. Yeah, but men live in a different paradigm to us in terms of thinking about their bodies. I'm sorry, but they do. So I, I, I understand what you're saying, but, but it's the pressure that Freddie Prince Jr... But why should she hold that pressure? I think... Because social... I, I do worry that social media is meant to be this place where... It's one of many places where we can now have more of a voice. Mm. But as you, you mentioned with censorship, you have a voice, but if you say anything that's remotely wrong, then mm. you should go back in your... I, I, th- I think what the, the, the main thing that I feel when I see those kind of posts about you know, women posting about their body in any context, really, I just kind of feel like I would love to get to a point where we don't have to make comments about our bodies. We don't have to be defined by our physical self all the time. And it actually keys into this amazing book that I've been reading this week, which is coming out in January, called Just Eat It by Laura Thomas. She, in the book, she promotes kind of intuitive eating and she talks about this concept, which is doing the rounds on Intuitive eating, yeah. But no, the concept is body neutrality, which is... Oh, yeah. And our friend Helen Neonius says this a lot. She said, it's so annoying to me that even in, a, even in a positive context, women have to have, like, you know, some sort of passionate relationship oh, with I their love, thighs. I love my stretch marks. Yeah. I love my hips or, like, I, I love... No, I, I would actually Whereas say Whereas men that, don't ever have, like, a I'm relationship probably, with their beer belly. I think I'm quite close to body neutrality, I would say. And yeah. I, I'm aware that that might be an annoying thing to say because I know that that's quite hard to achieve and, I, and I'm lucky. There's lots of other things I'm not great at. Oh, she's nuts in so many other ways, so don't be too jealous. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's the idea that you don't love your body and you don't hate your body, you just inhabit it. Exactly. You don't have to, like, put it on a placard and take it around town. Exactly, and I think that's what we're, you know, I'm far, far, far from body neutrality, but I think that's what I really hope for in the future, not that... Mm women, you know, make better jokes about their bodies or women, you know, publicly proclaim that they love their bodies, that women don't have to talk about their bodies at all. That's what I hope for. Given that she has over two million followers, I am, I'm surprised that she thought that it wouldn't court controversy. I also think it's interesting that it was her past body, not her present. Mm. I don't know if that makes any difference, the fact that she, and is it better that she's aspiring to inhabit her own body rather than someone else's. Mm. I mean, these are all, you know, these are all just ways of thinking about it rather than kind of just making that snap. Yes, yeah. And I think actually it comes, it's a larger ethical and philosophical question, which I think about quite a lot at the moment, which is, which is the most progressive and which is the most powerful? Acknowledging the fucked up world that we live in and the fact that you do play into the hands of it and making a joke about it, Mm. Or pretending that world doesn't exist. I don't. I really don't know. Well, I thought you were about to answer it for me. No, I don't know. I really don't know because I've got bit of both. I've landed in hot water. <laughs> you <laughs> I do use just it. Said it before. I remember. I made a joke about my, you know, fucked up relationship. You turned up body. to the Hilo with sunglasses on. It was a really bad week. It was my first ever Twitter storm. And afterwards, I did... A baby's first Twitter it storm. Was, yeah. <laughs> Helen, it, Helen texted me in the middle of it. Loads of friends would text me being like, are you OK? I'm worried about you. And Helen just replied, baby's first Twitter storm. Congrats. <laughs> 10x social uh, But, you know, it was the first time I'd been kind of shamed like that, really. And it did mean I had to take a moment to think about the way that I express myself when we're talking about these topics and the way that I use humour. And, yeah, it's still... Something- it's your lacy pant version. Uh, there's, st- <laughs> there's still something that I'm kind of noodling around. I don't know. I don't know. Part of me thinks it's, it is important that we acknowledge 
this terrible situation that so many women are in. And then another part of me thinks, well, uh, are you just feeding the patriarchal beast if you do that? I don't know. Answers on a postcard. Thank you. I don't want to shut down all discussions on bodies because actually they're pretty fascinating. And we live in the same one, shedding and reshedding, for however many years. And I think it would be really sad if that became so flammable we weren't allowed to interpret and reinterpret our relationship with it. But like you say, it's all how loaded Mm. that commentary is. Are you doing eyes because it's time for questions? Yeah. It's time for questions. (laughs) Right, so we can't really see you that well. Hello, everyone over there. Um, So you're going to have to stick your hands up and really waggle. Hello. Hi. Um, One of the things I really enjoy about the podcast is how you guys don't always agree with each other. Um, Didn't then? No, exactly. (laughs) And you give, like, more of a balanced view. Do you sometimes feel pressure to disagree with each other because you think that's an important part of the podcast? No, Uh, not at all. Not at all. Sorry, that was such a brief... (laughs) Annoyingly, we are on the same page most of the time. I think I can be a little bit more lefty, softy, loosey-goosey. Yeah. Woo-woo. Yeah. Pandora. Also, Pandora's... Pandora and I are different in that Pandora's very... uh, Pandora has a lot of integrity, and I don't. (laughs) And Pandora's... I think people think it's the other way around, though. No, no, Pandora's really taught me a lot about committing to an opinion and having confidence in it and being truthful and authentic. I think I'm so keen for everyone to just be in love with me. Sometimes I'll just, you know, just, just chat Honesty, come Chat on. bollocks if I feel like it's going to get a thousand retweets. Um, <laughs> so that's something that Pandora's really helped me with and guided me with, actually, is f- f- having confidence in, in what I truly believe and, and making sure that what I'm saying is aligning with my heart and my head. And also... I think Pandora and I have both been on such a journey with... I can't believe I said such a journey, sorry. It's because Strictly, Strictly Come Dancing is on at the moment. With not being afraid to, to not get things wrong, but to just to try stuff out and ask questions and be challenged. I think I had a lot of pride Definitely. before I started this podcast, and I thought if someone was doing that, they were calling me stupid or that they were trying to humiliate me. And now I'm basically... Un, no one can embarrass me now. And I say that all the time when we used to get kind of shamey, scoldy, finger-waggy emails from people being like, this is where you got this wrong. I replied being like, thank you so much. By the way, you're not going to embarrass me for getting this wrong. It's, I'm unembarrassable now, so thank you very much for informing me. Hello. Hi. Oh, gosh, I'm loud. Um, Dolly, I just wanted to ask about you being back in the dating game. <laughs> um, your favourite question. Yeah, sorry, there's so much to ask. But are you on apps and what's your tips? How do you start conversations? Tips or tits? Yeah. (laughs) What are your tit tips? Um, So I, our friend Elizabeth Day pointed us, pointed not us, Pandora's very happily married, pointed (laughs) me in the direction of Hinge, rhymes with Minge, which I thought was a... Which is a very good good branding. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing it rhymes with Minge? That's why I joined, yes. (laughs) And the reason it's good is the thing that I say to everyone about dating apps is you need to you need to get in there in its first year of of life because the calibre is much higher. And after a year, all the riffraff just come flooding in. So I don't know why it is. It does. It's like an Ibiza pool party. You need to get there early season. Exactly. I've never been to one, by the way. Yeah. Get in early. That's what I would say. Last question. No pressure. <laughs> Don't ask Pandora where her dress is from. Someone already Damn. did. It's fine. <laughs> it's, she's already put it on Twitter. It's fine. Um, I think it's really interesting that you guys have talked about emotional labour today because I think you guys do a lot of emotional labour. You get a lot of people's feelings thrown at you um, online and uh, in the oldie mail bag. Um, and like you were saying with the sort of snappy emails that you guys get, it's been really interesting hearing the journey that you've gone on. Oh, I've done it now. Um, uh, since the beginning of the podcast, as it's become more popular, um, sort of your relationship with people criticising you constantly. Yeah. Um, and I would just love to hear you guys talk a little bit more about how that's been um, and sort of where you're at with it now. If you don't Come on the high-low. So interesting. I was so into you talking. Yeah, I guess in that sense, not really sure if Arlie... Hosh, what was she called again? Hosh child would say that was emotional labour. But yeah, no, I think that I, th- I think it is. I think we I have to. Pr- I think we have to protect. A lot of the time, we do want constructive criticism. I have to say, sometimes I wish I 
didn't need to know what everyone thought of everything. <laughs> I, I went on to our iTunes view the other day, and I have to say our iTunes view, I'm sure some of you have left them or rated us. If not, God, I've not. never looked at um, those. Thank you so much, because it makes such a difference. But occasionally, about once every six months, I go... They sound like, exactly the same and talk too far. No, no, no. We actually have very, very few negative reviews, but one was recently that I loved was <laughs> just one line. This podcast is dripping in privilege. <laughs> it's so theatrical, dripping in privilege. It's like the Guardian, posh podcasters make themselves shiver in shame. That actually I didn't have a problem with. I was like, it's true. We, we yeah, do. Pandora and I as well have decided we're just the Jack Whitehalls of podcasts. <laughs> and you will never, ever see our names together without white, posh, privileged next to it. But it's true, you know, and Pandora and I, that is something that is thrown at us quite a lot, which is we are enormously privileged and we come from we're both privately educated we're both white we're both able-bodied we both we we come from a very very privileged context and I think at the beginning my relationship with my privilege has really changed since I've done this podcast and I think at the beginning I just I was so defensive all the time and now I realize that it's not only it's not only polite and courteous but it's our duty to acknowledge how our experience may have skewed our understanding of things and to use our platform to invite many many different people from we're many different open, backgrounds we're pretty open-minded as well i don't think anyone could accuse us of like not trying to cover lots of different things whether or not it's the topics we cover or the recommendations we have so i think we've become more resilient in that sense because we're like no we we yeah we're, we're kind of doing we're yeah. kind of doing okay with this sort of answered your question probably not really <laughs> took a detour um, I think that's all we've got. That time is all we have for. time for. Thank you so much for being such a fabulous audience. <laughs> Fab! Thanks, guys. <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 